Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I know a lot of you have heard the history. Of course, we all know it from our high school classes, right? We had the revolution. There were these high taxes, a tyrannical king. The United States fought back, won its independence, and then it jumped directly into the founding document, the Constitution, which separated powers and made sure that the government would never consolidate into some kind of overbearing total state, right? Except, of course, that's not the history. There was an entire period where the Constitution did not rule our country, where we had another document, the Articles of Confederation, and there was a whole different rebellion that took place inside the United States before we got our Constitution. So we're going to be diving into that today. We're going to go ahead and get to that important back history that many people are not aware of. But before we do that, let me introduce you to my guest today. He is returning. He is one of the smartest guys when it comes to history, and he is here to help me uh, unspool this whole thing. Ryan, Ryan Turnipseed, thanks for joining me, man. Thank you very much for the introduction. I'm uh, flattered. Uh, also, very happy to be back here again and talking about history and not other subjects. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I figure, figured you could use this one. You did such a great job with our MLK uh, uh, episode that I knew I wanted to go ahead and dive into this with you. So we're going to be talking, of course, about the uh, Constitution and whether it was actually a coup, whether it was actually a coup against the existing government of the United States. What do we think about that? How did all of this come about? So like I said, many of you uh, might already be familiar, but I think even more of you might be surprised to find out that the Constitution was not our first uh, document. It was not the first document that governed the United States. The Constitution, of course, is the Constitution of 1790. But the uh, American Revolutionary War is over in 81 or 83, depending on how you want to look at it. And so there's a whole period between the time of the end of the Revolutionary War and the uh, ratification of the Constitution, where we are ruled by another document called the Articles of Confederation. So, Ryan, let's go ahead and jump in. What was the Articles of Confederation? How did it significantly differ from, say, our current understanding of the Constitution? Right. So um, that's a pretty heavy question, and you'll get a different answer for each different historian you'll ask. But there's a um, the, the way that I would usually view it, um, if you look at the development of the East Coast colonies, um, at, by the time they're first settled to the Revolutionary War, each of them are very different. Uh, they have different interests. They have different classes that people would organize into socially and economically, different uh, uh, economic productions. So the North was very separate from the South, which would later develop in our uh, history come the Civil War. Um, and different states were much larger or much smaller, depending on their charter or their official borders. Um, if you were going to unify these uh, separate entities into a country after this, uh, after this war or during the war, um, you're going to have to have either the world's greatest negotiator or uh, a godly document to uh, uh, satisfy everyone. Uh, neither are really possible. You can get pretty close to both. Um, but what we ended up having was a confederal document, the Articles of Confederation, um, which some people would say that the more nationalistic northern elements um, were using it sort of as a stopgap. Uh, you know, you would take this Articles of Confederation um, that had a sort of federal advisory committee, if you will. Um, so there was sort of like a central government. It just had almost no powers at all. 
Um, it was uh, more advisory. You had delegates from each of the different territories uh, that would go to represent uh, their, uh, their constituents or their state in this advisory committee. Um, but ultimate and actual power was on each of the state governments or each of the territorial governments. Um, so nationalistic elements uh, could have seen this as sort of like a stopgap measure, uh, keep the whole country together and then progressively amend it as time goes on. Um, more, uh, I don't know what you would call it, liberal or anti-nationalist or uh, uh, colonial elements, if you will, hearkening back to the more colonial style of governance, um, would have viewed this as a more ideal document because each of these large states in the South and the Mid-Atlantic um, did not have to be beholden to some uh, extra governing body that was uh, that would look closer to a British imperial government, just closer to home. Um, you know, Virginia uh, could do its own thing inside Virginia without having to take into account Massachusetts or any of the other uh, any of the other northern, more nationalistic states. So uh, that's one way to look at it. Um, if you were wanting to look at like historical continuity. Um, it, mu it much more closely uh, reflects how each of these colonies developed. Um, so if you were to go back to the uh, early 1700s, late 1690s, and uh, propose the idea that each of the British colonies in the uh, east coast of North America outside of Canada would be in one entity, it would be absolutely insane. Um, you had the Carolina colonies, which uh, uh, looked more feudal in their establishment. That was quite famously their... Uh, founding uh, constitution was written by John Locke to enshrine a very rigid aristocracy. You had the puritanical charters in the north, um, which were like night and day compared to the uh, mid-Atlantic or southern aristocracies. You had the famous Virginia uh, planter aristocracy that would produce our uh, anti-federalist elements like uh, Thomas Jefferson, which I'm sure we'll get into in some capacity. Um, this Articles of Confederation sort of kept these differences between each of the colonial governments going into an independent government um, while still uniting them under sort of like a defense treaty, if you will. They would defend each other, pay towards some sort of a common fund as they deemed fit, um, but they could keep their peculiarities. Um, I, that might be a, uh, a good summary. Maybe I left something out there. No, that's, that's, that's a good way to start. Yeah, I think it's essential for people to understand that this does function like you're talking about more as a defense treaty between these different kind of quasi nations rather than one unifying document that was going to create a, a large or powerful country. It of course has some huge differences. Uh, there's really only one branch of government. There's really only a legislative branch. There are no, uh, there are no national courts. There are, there is no executive. People don't realize that yes, George Washington's technically your first president, but that's only because there is no executive up until that point. Uh, there's a president of the of the Congress, but he doesn't really have executive power in the way that we think about it. Uh, there's also no way really for the states to adjudicate a lot of their differences. Uh, the, there's no court that can like decide between borders or other other issues of states. Uh, there, there's no agreement that requires states to kind of treat each other's citizens really as even part of the same country. Uh, you could uh, put certain taxes and restrictions on uh, travelers from other states into your state. So if someone from Virginia wanted to go into Massachusetts and sell something, they could actually put specific restrictions on them as if they were some kind of foreign entity, you know, uh, trying to do trade with them. And so when we're looking at the Articles of Confederation, it is a very loose uh confederation really it is a, a very loose joining of these 
uh, different uh, states, basically different countries, uh, it, un again, under kind of this mutual defense treaty, rather than some kind of uh, unified country with a particular identity, a particular purpose. And so the United States was always kind of originally conceived in this way. Uh, that has a lot of advantages to some people today. They think of that, okay, that's awesome that all these states got to do this. They didn't have an overbearing government, but also left certain things uh, lacking. For instance, the government could technically raise an army, but it didn't really have a funding mechanism for that army. Um, it didn't have the ability to collect taxes. It also didn't have the ability to print money on a national scale. And so that meant that the United States could not pay its collective debts uh, for the war against Britain. Instead, uh, they had to uh, kind of break those debts across all these different states. Each state was responsible for a portion of the war debt. And that's kind of where we start running into Shays' Rebellion, right? That these, these states become desperate to pay off much of this war debt. And many of these states, Massachusetts is the one we'll be focusing on because this is where the action took place. Uh, but you know, they start levying uh, excessive taxes against their population, Some, in some cases, way more than they ever paid under the British. So I saw some estimates between three and five times more taxes to the state government to pay off this war debt than they did to the British government to pay off the debt for the French and Indian War. Right. And so that's... Uh... That's one of the historical ironies, which was not lost on the colonists. As we mentioned, there was a very famous rebellion that we'll be diving into. Um, another uh, very pertinent factor was that there was a uh, um, what modern historiography would call a depression, basically immediately after the war, 1780, um, where you had some very questionable uh, monetary policies coming from the Bank of North America, if I recall correctly, um, which uh, they were trying to garner legitimacy. They employed people like Thomas Paine and all these other types uh, that we would know now and that a lot of the colonists knew um, to support a inflationary uh, monetary regime. Um, most people with sound economics would know that if you uh, have an inflationary regime, it is not going to treat your farmers, your planters, your artisans well, the people sort of on the lower end. Uh, they're the last people that get this new money. Um, they are going to get the worst, the, the short end of the stick, the people that get the money first, like the industrialists, um, whatever uh, cronies were tied to the Bank of North America, um, were going to get it first. They're going to be better off. Um, and this really sort of... Uh, um, outlines that you have two power classes that have arisen in this post-revolutionary uh, uh, government or, or collection of states. Um, you had planters, artisans, farmers, um, these, uh, I don't want to say lower class people because that implies a sort of hierarchy here, but the uh, um, you'll see when, when the uh, contrast comes in because you have the other class which would be uh, uh, the more northern sort of uh, statesmen and politicians, industrialists, merchants, um, that would tend to comprise a more nationalistic faction uh, for various different reasons, um, which you can kind of see why you would want to rank them higher class and lower class. Um, so with this nationalist faction that was arising um, immediately after the war stopped, um, industrialists um, did not like the fact that for each of the different uh, governments, you could have a different regulation on commerce, a different currency to exchange. Um, you would have to lobby for different protections from those governments for your industry. Um, it would be much much more convenient, much more profitable for these specific and established industries. Um, if there was just one trade zone comprising all of the colonies uh, with one tariff to protect them, 
one government to lobby for their protections. Um, and these uh, industrials would be in league with the statesmen and politicians of the North, which we mentioned earlier, uh, tended to be from more smaller nationalistic states, which favored a stronger uh, centralized government as opposed to the uh, more southern and mid-Atlantic uh, anti-federalist states, also had a uh, very good uh, relationship with the pulpits, the, the pastors uh, that spanned the nation, and the media organizations, the newspapers, tended to be more nationalistic. So these are your two classes that really start to uh, uh, divide themselves after this depression because of all the different policies that impacted them differently. One was sort of uh, being hurt for the benefit of the other, um, which would lead us very neatly into a uh, reaction to all of this in the form of the Shazites. Yeah, so we're really, like you're saying, we're seeing the emergence of kind of this divide that will lead us through the Civil War and, you know, basically up to today, which is this divide between the urban and the rural, right? We have the ports, uh, we have the warehouses, we have the merchant class, uh, we have those who make their, their money in the cities and off of industry, uh, and they want to see a unification. They want to see a uniformity because this allows for increases of trade. If this sounds familiar, because you've been listening to my managerial elite theory uh, 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 videos, that's because uh, this is this is a function of capital as well, as much as that's going to make some people angry. Uh, and so this is the the centralization and the the unification, the standardization benefits a particular class, a particular region, a particular uh, economic interests of people who uh, you know live in these urban areas. And uh, you know the the farmers have a much different interest. the The rural populations have a much different interest. And they don't want to see this happen the same way. Now, on top of the fact that they're already paying taxes, many of these farmers were, of course, uh, soldiers in the Revolutionary War. Uh, they came back after years of not being able to work their farms uh, or, you know, leaving it only to their wives or, or uh, their young sons to work the farm. Many of them had to deeply leverage themselves in order to maintain uh, ownership of the farm, to, to pay. And as uh, you know, Ryan pointed out, uh, they also received the lowest benefits of new money coming out of these banks that they were leveraging themselves to. And so a lot of them are seeing the fact that basically we went to war to go fight against taxation without representation, tyranny, you know, the, these people who are forcing us to lose our livelihoods. Uh, and now I'm paying three, five times more ta taxes so that this rich guy over in Boston uh, can, can uh, you know, make sure to make his money, uh, can pay back his debts. Uh, that, that doesn't make any sense. So these guys who had just gone to war, um, you know, uh, over taxes are now being heavily taxed. Now, on top of that, uh, banks, uh, some states like Massachusetts passed the Currency Act. The Currency Act requires uh, that all of these debts that are paid to the government now need to be paid in uh, in hard currency. They need to be paid in gold or silver. They can't be paid in paper currency. And so farmers who are already very unlikely to have gold and silver at hand anyway can't even use the paper money that they were largely paid with for military service if they were paid at all. Uh, in order to pay back their debts and they can't use the products of their trade uh, because barter is still very heavily used at this time because again there's not a standardized currency and so they are even further behind the eight ball when it comes to trying to pay these things off and of course these guys say to themselves well um you know we just fought, fought a war over this 
uh, why don't we go ahead and use our right to go protest? Uh, of course, again, guys, there's no there's no Bill of Rights yet, so they wouldn't have said the First Amendment, but they understood the idea of of uh, asking for redress of grievances through protest. And so these guys go and they decide to start protesting by shutting down the courts because the courts had to uh, basically go through a legal proceeding to foreclose on the farms if they didn't pay their debts. So if the government wanted to seize the farms, they had to go ahead and go through this. And of course, when these guys are protesting, they're not just some guys with signs. These are literally soldiers who just went to war recently. So they're showing up with bandits and rifles. Right. And so if people just want some sort of hard currency for just what was the situation like at the time for uh, taxation, war debts, um, foreclosures and all this other stuff, um, post-war, uh, uh, the Massachusetts wartime debt, um, it went from about 100,000 uh, pounds near the start of the, of the Revolutionary War uh, to about 1.5 million pounds at the end, uh, which is a absolutely gigantic number for the time. Um, and this would, uh, in turn, mean, uh, as we said beforehand, there's no, uh, there's no central agents, there's no central government, there's no central executive. Um, this tax collection fell onto the state governments, and however they were organized was how they would collect, um, which meant these Massachusetts uh, courthouses uh, would entertain most of the suits for, uh, uh, for debtors, for foreclosures, for uh, whatever else, uh, delinquency and whatnot, uh, whatever uh, would come about. Um, so... Just for instance, um, 1784, um, Massachusetts was uh, still suffering from this uh, extreme depression. Another thing that we might want to touch on just briefly is that uh, during the war, um, most of these uh, northern industrialists had greatly expanded their productive capacities mm -hmm. um, beyond what might be economically sensible, which meant that a lot of these uh, state expenditures and protections and whatever else that were hurting these uh, uh, more rural uh, interests we're going to protect these uh, overbloated industries that were still a holdover from the war. Uh, that didn't sit well, um, and this tax burden, as we mentioned, didn't. Uh, it, it did not uh, sit well with the uh, rural interests, especially after they had been fighting for so long. Um, so, in the uh, Worcester County of Massachusetts, 1784 alone, there were 2,000 suits for the recovery of taxes and other debts. Uh, that's once again 1780s. Uh, Massachusetts County um, right after the war and there's already thousands of suits being law, uh, uh, leveled against people to procure war, uh, war debt basically um, because these people are unable to pay taxes. It's a, That's an absolutely insane number uh, for just getting out of a war during an economic depression uh, for a state whose policies heavily favored industrialists at the expense of farmers. Um, you can't really govern like that, regardless of how strong you think you are, because that's a that's a great erosion of a legitimacy, which every uh, state, every social organization relies upon in order to govern effectively. If you do not have legitimacy, you will get people uh, rebelling against you, which leads to that uh, um, protest that you were talking about, mostly from the western parts of Massachusetts, the uh, um, the places. Uh, where you would uh, have most of these uh, suits for the recovery of taxes and other debts um, where the farmers were in this nationalistic industrial state. There is still half of it which is rural and uh, is not at the uh, benefit of any of these policies. <laughs> now, the uh, the government obviously is getting scared here. Uh, they, they're not sure uh, where this is going to go, but they know this is probably not a great thing. 
But funny enough, we have some disagreements here. So one founding father, Thomas Jefferson, uh, hears about this. He's in France at the time. And he writes a letter, um, you know, kind of musing about the fact that there's a rebellion inside the United States. And many people don't realize it, but this is where his quote about uh, the tree of liberty from time to time needs to be watered, you know, with the blood of patriots. Th that's uh, tyrants and patriots. Like that, that, this is where that quote comes from. That quote is not about the Revolutionary War. That quote is actually about Shays' rebellion. Um, and so, in, in many ways, Jefferson, who himself is going to end up being an anti-federalist and uh, feels himself to be like an aristocrat from uh, from the South and from you know, kind of representing the rural interests sees this as a positive thing. But then you have guys like Sam Adams, who actually uh, vehemently oppose this uh, rebellion, who want to see it shut down as quickly as possible. Uh, Sam Adams will, uh, will will talk a little bit more eventually about how kind of extreme he gets with his demands about this. Uh, but he's one of one of the voices that ends up pushing for a couple of different ra uh, acts including uh, something called the Riot Act. Uh, so when people say, read you the Riot Act, that's that's where they're, they're going uh, to. And the Riot Act basically said that anybody who didn't immediately disperse at one of these protests uh, could be jailed for a year, could be lashed, I think it's like 30 plus times uh, and like and, and every three months. So you wouldn't just get lashed the first time before you went to jail. You get lashed every three months while you're in, in, uh, in custody. And also all of your property was forfeit. Uh, so these guys who had just fought this revolutionary war uh, against taxes were now learning that if they even go and stand on the steps of the courthouse and refuse to move, uh, then they can be locked in jail for a year, lose all of their property, uh, and be lashed. Uh, they also uh, uh, passed a law saying you couldn't have more than 12 men uh, who were armed together, that that was considered a posse. And eventually, uh, they even went so far as to suspend habeas corpus, which is, of course, the favorite tool of any government that's just about to give you the old railroad. Right, exactly. And um, you can kind of, so we have all that. It might sound familiar for people that are uh, familiar with the uh, war between the states or uh, maybe even some modern times just with less direct means. Um, but I, I think a good contrast here to see uh, um, who's really upholding how uh, the country is supposed to be ran would be looking at what do these Western Massachusetts uh uh, protesters want. Um, well, they were uh, basically asking the uh, state government in Massachusetts uh, for an exemption of, of private property of these people if they are arrested, so they don't want their assets liquidated without their consent, um, something that was very uh, heavily uh, uh, used by the anti-federalists, particularly Thomas Jefferson, would be consent um, in this uh, new legal philosophy that developed here. Um, this, this was a very consistent uh, demand from these uh, people in Western Massachusetts, I'm, I would say. Um, and then, moreover, they also were uh, protesting a, uh, the assumption of more debt upon Massachusetts. Um, not because they didn't think that debt shouldn't be paid off, but because, as we already discussed, Massachusetts had an absolutely insane amount of debt and the burden was only falling upon these farmers. Um, and every time that Massachusetts would in, uh, incur some, some form of more debt, um, they would up polls taxes, estate taxes, or something, uh, uh, something along those lines, taxes that very obviously will harm uh, these people out west, not necessarily the people closer to the coast uh, who, would, um, who would be the industrialists that, that uh, 
other more higher class uh, power group that we discussed at the beginning. Um, so whenever they had, uh, you know, habeas corpus was suspended, uh, whenever they had all of these different uh, uh, very su uh, suppressive uh, actions taken against them, um, <laughs> that, that sort of exacerbated this whole thing because now support for these uh, Shazites, as they would later be called, still in the, uh, in the protesting stage, not exactly a full-on insurgency, um, would spread beyond just the western part of Massachusetts because it didn't set well with most people, regardless of whatever um, power group you were in, that the state was taking on more and more debt, was protecting one specific sector of, of its economy, and was basically just shafting everyone else uh, out west. You don't have to be a farmer or a planter to see that this is unjust, especially after, as you mentioned, uh, the entire rallying cry for this uh, this uh, almost decade-long war was no taxation without representation, and here you had these people who fought for that coming home, uh, getting their estates foreclosed upon. So that's the... This is sort of like the reaction that you see. They go and protest. The government just goes down even harder against them, and you, this might be a uh, downside of the articles, if you will. There is nothing stopping Massachusetts from doing this. If Massachusetts wanted to, so long as it was still technically a Republican constitution, um, they could have uh, completely eliminated any uh, redress for these uh, for these Western uh, protesters. Um, so that we could get into the basic political philosophy there. I don't know if you want to, but that's a it's just some uh, one downside here. In theory, if you didn't like it, you would leave for another state, but that's not exactly the best solution if you've been there for. Uh, you know, over a century at that point, you've developed your state. So, uh, yeah, yeah, this is always the problem with exit as the solution, right? Is assuming that people can just pick up and go. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. You know, vote with your feet sounds great. Maybe as modern people uh, who aren't, you know, terribly rooted to our land the way that a farmer was and can, you know, get across state lines in a matter of a few hours, that sounds like a pretty feasible thing. But for somebody who makes their living in the dirt, uh, who would have had to, you know, make an arduous trip to to make this move and would have basically had to rearrange their life to do this. It's not that simple. And like you said, this is becoming very unpopular, uh, which is why the governor here runs into a big problem because, uh, you know, the, the United States doesn't really have a standing army um, at this point. Uh, there's, there's really only a few hundred guys uh, that they even have the option of wielding. Many of these protests are long, literally larger than the, the U.S. Army at this point. And so the governor decides that he wants to have a kind of a militia, a state militia to protect this. So he attempts to go to the Massachusetts uh, legislature to kind of uh, levy this, this militia. Uh, but it turns out that most of these politicians understand how unpopular throughout the state this, these measures are becoming. And most of them don't want to risk uh, their own kind of hide in, in their elections uh, and maybe even their safety uh, if they're putting themselves out there to raise a militia. So the governor actually fails to raise a militia to stop uh, kind of these protests. And so he decides that instead he's going to try to create a private army. He's basically going to create a mercenary force uh, to to go after these guys. And so he puts some of his own money down and starts raising money from the business community, from the uh, East, East Coasters from the Bostonites, from the, the industrialists and the, the, uh, the dock guys and things to go ahead and uh, start raising money to kind of send a force after, uh, after these guys. 
the government is aware that there is an armory in Springfield. There's a government armory in Springfield. And that if these guys kind of organize and go after that armory, then they could have a much bigger kind of problem on their hands. And so to go ahead and meet this uh, challenge, uh, the governor, it takes him a while, but eventually he is able to kind of raise the funds and create this mercenary force uh, to kind of uh, go and, and, and try to stop what is quickly becoming a paramilitary organization under Daniel Shea. Right, exactly. And it might also be worth noting um, around this time, um, you mentioned that they couldn't raise an army to actually defend against anything that was going to happen here. Um, so the Massachusetts government uh, basically just says, uh, uh, all right, we're just going to close the courts to make sure this can't exacerbate any harder. Right. Um, which um, sounds like uh, it might be a win for these people if they're being foreclosed upon by the courts. But in actuality, all that means is that uh, now everything's just in limbo. Um, whatever has happened has still happened. They, it could happen again at any point in time whenever these courts are uh, restored come the deadline. Um, it's just really what it was was a way to get uh, Massachusetts officials and bureaucrats and judges and whatever else out of the courts so that there wouldn't be any sort of an altercation there as this, uh, as this uh, militia force uh, formulates, uh, actually uh, solidifies itself. Um, so... This is also where we start seeing our leaders form whenever this, uh, whenever these people actually arm and organize uh, in whatever ways they can, uh, which would include our uh, Shays, uh, our uh, great debtor from, uh, was, it, was it Penham or something like that, or Pelham? Yeah, Pelham. Um, so a debtor himself, a veteran from the Revolutionary War, two things that really should not have happened, and most people could see this, which is why this is growing increasingly unpopular, um, it's a very similar sentiment that you could find today um, whenever you see a bunch of people come back from wars, whatever they may be, um, and you learn later that they have a suicide epidemic, they have an opioid epidemic, and whatever else. Um, it's not a very popular look for the governments of these places where they're happening. Um, very similar sentiments, except uh, even worse, because this is the Revolutionary War, everyone knew somebody that fought, died, uh, and was injured, mutilated, or whatever else. Um, so imagine your modern sentiments surrounding veterans and their plights uh, times 10. Uh, this is what's happening to the Massachusetts state government. So they uh, lock down the courts. Uh, these uh, militias start getting their own leaders. Um, and what do these Massachusetts courts do? Well, they start, or these, uh, the Massachusetts government do, they start throwing around the ideas of, uh, of uh, offering concessions, token concessions to these uh, organizing militias before they do anything in hopes that they'll stand down. Um, so I believe one of the measures that was taken uh, was that uh, taxes and debts could, be, it could no longer had to be paid in specie. Um, it, you didn't just have to pay in gold or silver, you could pay in commodity, um, which was kind of like, a, it's kind of like uh, putting some sweetener in like rat poison before you force someone to eat it, um, uh, because you still had revocation of all of these, uh, of all these rights, uh, you know, right to a trial by jury, um, habeas corpus, uh, the freedom of the press was completely destroyed, uh, something that most of these people supported. Um, you had all of these uh, suits that were still up against them uh, that could be brought against them at any time, so I'm not even, most of them weren't uh, entirely sure that they could fund their debts by just commodity. Um, so it was, what it was was a pressure release valve, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and there were a few other, um, there were a few other concessions given as well that don't come to mind immediately, but that was the big one. 
Um, they did not stand down, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it, Shay ends up sending a letter um, with some of the demands of the rebels. Uh, it, it, I think it's actually like one of the few primary sources we have from Shay. Uh, but his demands are more in line of, hey, uh, you need to move the courthouse from Boston over here uh, to Springfield, you know, so it's actually somewhere near uh, our, our actual, so we can actually get, you know, uh, judges and, and, and uh, juries and such that are actually uh, interested in our cause and familiar to our locality. Uh, he also, funny enough, uh, suggests, hey, you guys love paying off war debts with all the backs of the farmers. Uh, why don't we just end up selling Boston Harbor? Uh, we'll just, so that's one of his, his demands is that they, uh, they sell out, uh, sell off some of the East Coast assets of uh, Massachusetts in order to pay for this. So it's very clear that, um, you know, th this was not going to get solved, uh, you know, by, by some kind of uh, small concession, one direction or the other. And so we start seeing the kind of the formation of this paramilitary. Uh, Daniel Shea, like he said, is a veteran. I believe he's a colonel, but I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there's there's also two other uh, veteran uh, uh, military uh, officers who are leading that kind of break this into three divisions uh, of the uh, of the Shea's rebellion. Uh, remember, these guys aren't just uh, random farmers with pitchforks. These are all, you know, the majority of them are. Uh, revolutionary war veterans these are people who have uh drilled they have fought in significant battles they have faced a far superior military uh and so the government is right to be worried about these people it's it's not just a you know the backwards yokels coming at you with uh you know whatever hunting rifle that's sitting around you know the, these are guys who are drained uh, who are trained they're drilled uh they're 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 veterans uh they're led by military commanders who have a significant amount of experience uh they're well respected uh, and so they start, uh, they kind of start marching on this armory. The government, uh, you know, kind of uh, correctly guessed that that would be the target uh, because the the private military, the, the kind of the mercenary force has the advantage of what you'd guess for, for a, a higher military. They have the advantage of arms, right? They have the advantage of uh, having uh, artillery uh, and uh, more sophisticated arms, um, even though the, the veterans themselves are uh, well-practiced um, they still don't have that level of uh, kind of uh, armed superiority. And so they're hoping that by raiding uh, the the armory itself, they'll be able to kind of go toe to toe uh, with uh, kind of the, the force that has been brought by the Massachusetts government or rather by the, the governor kind of through this mercenary force. Uh, but they end up not getting there in time. Uh, one of one of the, the uh, one of the uh, battalions or uh, you know, units does not reach uh, the armory in time, and it ends up being seized by the uh, professional military force and not the rebels themselves. Right, and um, it's also around this time as well that we start uh, the uh, paramilitary starts actually naming names uh, of people that they oppose. Like, they actually solidify who they're up against. So, on top of the uh, very nationalistic governor of Massachusetts at the time, uh, is it Baldwin or something like that? Uh, I want to say it starts with the B. Um, you also have a uh, uh, a reverend um, and a other Revolutionary War uh, veteran that was uh, both were very big in Massachusetts politics. Um, uh, both were sort of on this uh, the higher class power group. Um, all three of them were advocating for the policies that led to this. Um, but that uh, the fact that they were targeting a reverend, uh, a uh, a minister. Um, it shows uh, something else here. Uh, these nationalistic groups tended to be very pro-clerical. 
um, the anti-nationalistic or the anti-federalist groups tended to be very anti-clerical in a very traditional American fashion. Um, if you look at America compared to other European countries, if you were to uh, compare them to the founding stocks, um, America tends to be much more anti-clerical. They tend to have a very inherent distrust um, to invested authority uh, given to clergy. Um, and this is going to uh, rear here, and it's also going to be sort of a uh, foreshadowing to a, uh, uh, the later document, the Constitution, due to the extreme clerical influence that you, re that you will see given to it. But that's, that's just a little bit of a connection there for the future. Um, whenever you uh, look at the fact that these people are trying to seize an armory and stage an actual uprising, you start to see rhetoric being passed around from the media that was associated with the... Uh, Massachusetts uh, state government faction, uh, who are, uh, <laughs> tell me if you've ever heard this one before, they're claiming that any, uh, any sort of action taken against the Massachusetts state government is a foreign provoca uh, provocation, uh, particularly the British government was, uh, was inciting this uh, evil rebellion against the legitimacy of the Massachusetts state government. Not Russia this time? No, no. no Russian threat. Of it. No, yeah, no Russo, but yeah. Right, so um, <coughs> this is something that happened. It didn't really catch on because there was no proof at all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, almost certainly was not the case. Um, but that was, a, that was a card that they pulled here. Um, and it, while it was uh, still new, while it was, uh, you didn't have to provide proof, just the uh, fact that it was suggested was inflammatory, um, it caught on with the more nationalistic elements um, who, um, a way that uh, most history classes will teach these two factions, the anti-federalists and the federalists, the nationalist businessmen versus the planters, is that the northern nationalist businessmen tended to be very Anglophile. Um, this comes about later, and it's in terms of government structure and not necessarily in terms of uh, geopolitics. Um, so these nationalists in the north um, could very well claim that it was Perfidious Albion, uh, to use a, uh, an acronym, uh, that was inciting this rebellion in the western Massachusetts region, uh, while still being uh, more amenable to a sort of more British style of government. Um, one that would be much more aristocratic in nature because that would protect their interests. Uh, that would uh, protect their economic and political interests. Uh, so you see these interesting uh, forces come into a convergence here, clericalism versus anti-clericalism, the nationalist versus anti-nationalist that we've been discussing, um, and then also now uh, sort of like a foreign policy issue, if you will, uh, pro-British or anti-British or neutral. Uh, all of these things sort of come up here, uh, spring to the forefront. They had been in the background for... Uh, for so long, and now it's uh, it's actually coming up to the uh, to the surface. So, with the failure to kind of seize the armory, uh, the the Shaves Rebellion kind of falls apart. Uh, the mercenary force has has those uh, weapons in hand, and what we see is uh, Daniel Shea ends up fleeing Massachusetts. Uh, he comes back later here uh, because uh, John Hancock actually uh, becomes the governor of Massachusetts. And he does so by running uh, kind of in favor of maybe not the rebellion itself, but, but sympathetic to uh, understanding. I don't think that's really Han where Hancock kind of fell in this, but he knew it was good politics at the time. He knew what was popular and what wasn't. He knew where the votes were. And so he kind of ran on this promise of uh, pardoning uh, the Shayites uh, and, you know, and uh, Daniel Shea and uh, the rest of the uh, veterans who had been part of this rebellion end up getting uh, pardoned. Now, 
funny enough, I told you we'd come back to Sam Adams. Now, Sam Adams is furious about this. Uh, and he actually demands uh, the execution of uh, these rebels, uh, which is funny because, you know, we're just fighting against the user rebel just a few years earlier uh, when it was in his interests. And he was a big fan of that. And really interestingly, uh, his his logic on this, the reason that he thought that this was it was it was OK to rebel against, uh, you know, Britain, but not rebel against uh matt the government of massachusetts is he specifically said i can understand why you would pardon a rebel against a king a monarch uh but anyone who rebels against the will of the people the republic uh that that's inexcusable and that should lead to death so we see early on the idea that democracy the voice of the people the republic allows for a viciousness actually and a violence and a a removal of rights in a way that the monarchy does not and so uh, very, very interesting uh, early on that our sacred democracy uh, was actually invoked by um, by people like uh, Sam Adams to justify kind of a harsher crackdown against the rebels in the first place. But obviously, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, and I was just going to say very quickly, uh, this crackdown wasn't just limited to Massachusetts. They enlisted other state governments nearby, particularly Connecticut, to help stamp out remaining guerrilla forces. Um, and then the only place that took in these uh, these rebels uh, was an independent Vermont uh, that was still independent at the time. So uh, this is a this isn't like he's saying uh, it's not like something bad happened and he's just being particularly inflammatory. Like they're preparing for a guerrilla war to be waged in the west of Massachusetts that requires a multi-state coalition to deal with it. Uh, and then, you know, Vermont is sort of hampering that. Uh, he's a, this is a declaration of war against guerrillas is really what it is. Yeah. And so what we see here, obviously, is um, kind of the, those vested business interests panic, right? Now, now these guys actually end up, funny enough, uh, the the private militia that was originally funded by kind of the businessmen, the merchant class, the 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 industrialists uh, in uh, in eastern Massachusetts ends up getting paid for out of the tax money. They end up getting reimbursed by the state uh, for funding the mercenary force. And so even gross, grosser than the, than the massive taxes that were leveled on the farmers, those taxes went to pay the military, the, the private military that eventually was sent to shoot them. So they paid off their own Pinkertons with the taxes collected by the very farmers they were going uh, to to kind of uh, put down and, and stop the rebellion with. So obviously this starts leading us towards the Constitution. Now, again, most people think of the Constitution as the great restrictor of government power. The great, you know, it's, it's separation of powers. We're, we're, we're holding government. We're keeping it from expanding. Uh, we're using all of these different mechanisms and checks and balances to make sure that it's, uh, you know, that it's not going to consolidate power. But in fact, the gov the uh, constitution is created to consolidate power to create a government that would be able to put down rebellions and protect the interests of merchant classes and in, in developing industrial classes inside the united states uh it, it, far from being a restriction of power it's actually a consolidation after the articles of confederation prove that it won't allow the elites to easily put down these kind of armed rebellions Right, and the mere centralization of an authority across all of these different uh, states uh, benefited each of those high-class interests that we talked about at the beginning. The businessmen now have their 
potential if this works uh now have their one economic zone one place to lobby uh they can have free interstate commerce one wall of tariffs around the whole country they can expand to whatever state they want to if this works um the uh that's the businessmen uh, the statesmen and the politicians now have a stronger authority uh, with which they can solidify their power in the government, uh, something that didn't really exist under the Articles. Under the Articles, you only had your state government out of the multiple state governments that existed. Um, the clerics and the media. Um, we'll start with the clerics first. Um, something that people don't understand because of the way that the doctrine of separation of church and state under the Constitution has been corrupted in the modern day, uh, particularly with its incorporation, uh, with the incorporation doctrine that came about during the civil rights era. Um, most people would find the idea that um, state governments in the United States had an established religion. Uh, most people would find that absolutely insane, uh, almost unthinkable, but this is what existed in particularly the North and parts of the Mid-Atlantic. Um, you had state churches that could exercise political authority officially. Um, if you are, say, a Baptist from Rhode Island, uh, having one uh, central body of government uh, that, could that could potentially hamper these religious restrictions on the local level uh, would be very beneficial to you because you could go into that state and uh, start whatever ministry you want to, flee to that state if you needed to, uh, whatever else. Uh, you could also circumvent Anglican regulations in the Mid-Atlantic and the South. Uh, if you were a Puritan or whatever else. So, um, and then the media, um, the newspapers, um, they wouldn't have to deal with multiple regulations and uh, uh, strong powers on each local level potentially trying to go against them, something that happened quite often in the colonies and then the uh, Confederal uh, United States. Um, you would instead have a federal government under a constitutional authority, if it works, um, that could protect them and that they could control. Um, something that you particularly and a bunch of our friends are on would mention is that uh, the media has a lot of influence over government. Uh, this is still true in the 1700s, um, just maybe to a slightly lesser extent than now that it's, uh, uh, that it's uh, inescapable. Um, newspapers were a very, very big thing back then. So these media men saw a lot of great opportunity for uh, especially exercising and developing power if you centralized authority. So it doesn't matter necessarily what the specifics are, just so long as each of these groups get a central authority that can knock down these state governments in some way, um, a, a much more stronger and centralized power, they get what they want. And then conversely, uh, each of the uh, lower class, the second category of power, the planters, the artisans, uh, the, the peasant farmer and whatever else, uh, would be harmed by the centralization of power for reasons that you can probably surmise. So when we see this uh, big debate coming together, right, a lot of us, again, hear this story about uh, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and kind of the arguments between them. And it's, you know, a lot of people understand that we have these Federalist papers where, you know, uh, Mad Madison, Hamilton, and Jay uh, you know, they, they write these letters and they make these arguments about, uh, you know, why we need to adopt the Constitution, all these things. And most people understand this as a dynamic where they, they kind of use these superior arguments to kind of persuade people uh, into this. But in fact, uh, most of the Federalist Papers didn't really have that much reach, right? They didn't really actually do a whole lot when it came to compelling people one way or another to sign on to this Constitution. 
Right, and uh, if you are looking in how this constitution was established as a legitimate authority, um, the best summary answer that you can give is that it wasn't. Um, it was just kind of imposed and you're expected to go along with it, uh, regardless of whether you support it or not. So um, whenever uh, history classes, historians, pop history uh, tries to explain that everyone saw that these Articles of Confederation were inefficient, uh, they were going to drive the country farther apart, they weren't going to defend themselves properly, the government was dysfunctional, everyone saw this and so we needed a strong central authority. Uh, that is a, at the very best a half-truth and at the worst a flat-out lie um, because this uh, confederal structure of government was actually popular with people in which the state governments were competent and uh, weren't doing what Massachusetts did basically. Um, so. When you when you look at all of that, um, this sort of popular history is a complete lie. Um, there is no really legitimate way that this was established, and I'm I'm sure we're about to get into that. It wasn't like some letters campaign in a classic English liberal style where people are standing on street corners and espousing the virtues of centralized government. Yeah, I mean, you know, we I believe under the Articles of Confederation, you needed a supermajority to do basically anything. And you needed a a, a, a unanimous vote uh, to actually you know change the articles into, into anything else. Of course, that's not what happened at all. Uh, and so, uh, actually, to this day, uh, you know, fun, funny side thing: if you hear people who go through the sovereign citizen uh, movement, uh, who taught you know they're the ones who are like, uh, you can't actually you know pull me over and give me a speeding ticket because I'm a sovereign citizen, and they start quoting stuff. They're referencing the uh, article, the fact that the Articles of Confederation were never legally abandoned. They were, they were, uh, so that they, they see themselves as still being governed by the Articles of Confederation, which are the true, still legitimate uh, Constitution of the United States, and not the uh, the usurpation that was the 1790 uh, Constitution. Obviously, that never stops anything. That doesn't help them at all. But uh, they, they usually end up just getting beaten up by the cops. But it is always funny if you're wondering where they got that idea. It's because they. They believe that the Constitution is entirely invalid and that they're still under, they're referencing the fact that they still live under the Articles of Confederation. But yeah, I mean, I guess we could get into the the Constitution itself. I, I wasn't going to spend uh, too much time on that other than kind of giving the backstory of uh, that. I mean, the main thing I wanted to kind of get to is the Constitution then brings us uh, into a situation where the government immediately uses its power to stop a rebellion uh, in the Whiskey Rebellion, right? So the the, the very uh, power that they had wanted to acquire, uh, they kind of immediately apply when it comes to the Whiskey Rebellion. Right, and this is the only things I really have to add on the Constitution itself, besides what you just mentioned, where um, before it was ratified, they used the Constitution's method of ratification to make it leg the legitimate right. authority. They just ignored the Articles of Confederation altogether. Um, so uh, that's, that's what always gets me with staunch constitutionalists trying to pretend like this was uh, a very judicial and uh, natural evolution of common law and whatever else. It's, it's not. Um, but um, something that you see that's very interesting, and uh, if you... Uh, um, Albert J. Nock has a very good uh, chapter on this um, in Our Enemy the State as the book. Um, basically, after a little while of going through what we've just discussed through his own lens... Um, he talks about the different uh, uh, the different positions in the new constitutional, the new federal government, and uh, how they relate to the convention. Um, because once again, this convention was not a it was not official. Um, you can, if it was any other country, um, the Americans would look at this as a coup d'état. 
is the best way that I can put this. Um, if this had happened in any other country where uh, famous statesmen, businessmen, merchants, and clerics all got together in secret because what they were doing was illegitimate and established a new government and just went along with it, um, most historians would say this is a coup d'etat. Um, I mean, they just kind of appointed George Washington president, right? Like, it right, wasn't and, even a vote. <laughs> and this is, this is something interesting. George Washington was supposed to be like the leader of that convention or the chairman, if you will. Um, if you look at all the different, um, I'll see if I can find specifics, but I, I encourage people to look, on, uh, look at this uh, work on their own from Albert J. Nock. Um, basically, all major positions in the new government came from delegates at this constitutional convention. Um, I think it's like two-thirds of the new senators were present at the convention. Same thing with the majority of the new House of Representatives. Uh, the major uh, departments within the executive branch were, st I think, like three-fourths of them were staffed by uh, um, people that were present at this convention. George Washington, as we just mentioned, was the chairman. Um, so this is a this is, for all intents and purposes, a coup by uh, these nationalistic interests, these business, clerical, media, and uh, statesman interests that dominated partic particularly the North. Um, so this is what we're looking at, which means that whenever we see a, a whiskey rebellion over an excise tax pop up immediately afterwards, we can kind of already predict the results, but I, we'll, we'll get into it, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, again, we don't have to get heavily in, into it because I wanted to get to the question of kind of our uh, our uh, stream as well. But I guess you kind of already answered it to some extent here. Um, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to no, take the gun. It's, it's fine. Uh, but uh, eye on the ball. That's important. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of point out that the Whiskey Rebellion happens after this. Uh, again, the kind of a, a, a the ability of the central government, particularly now, uh, the uh, you know the new federal government and uh, it's kind of more business uh, you know industrialist urban interests uh, able to kind of uh, extract a large amount of funding from rural people who tended to uh, kind of you know either consolidate their uh, their, their uh, extra crop into whiskey or uh, move rum production up from uh, from other areas. And so this ends up being something that is immediately in the favor of the North, immediately in favor of the urban elite, immediately in favor of the very people who just wrote this coup uh, that is now imposing a new tax uh, to kind of farm these people who they kind of just uh, hoodwinked out of the Articles of Confederation. Uh, but they have successfully centralized enough power for George Washington to personally like lead a force out uh, and kind of put down uh, the Whiskey Rebellion before anything significant comes of it. Right, exactly. And uh, this sort of a uh, crackdown after the centralization, just just to quickly go over this so that we can get to the, uh, the question that we were uh, discussing. Um, you can also see this hasty and almost malicious centralization with the passage of the Bill of Rights, um, because they were sort of promised at the convention to get some states to go along with it. Um, and the major uh, nationalistic or federalist uh, proponents were just hoping it would quietly be forgotten. Um, the reason that they were so quickly passed wasn't necessarily because of some strong commitment to ideals by the federalists in the pursuit of a, in the pursuit of a limited um, governmental uh, authority and restraint upon its powers, though that could definitely be there. Um, you also saw them try to force all these uh, amendments to the new constitution through so that there was not a... Uh, a development of people questioning the authority and legitimacy of the Constitution and trying to change it further. Um, so whenever you see Amendments 1 through 10 just get passed almost uh, at lightning speed, 
it's not because everyone just agreed this is a great idea. In fact, most nationalistic elements didn't like the fact that there is a Bill of Rights. Um, it, it was a concession that they gave, and they're passing it quickly to make sure that these uh, anti-federalist forces, one, get satiated to the point where they don't care anymore, and two, don't question the very structure of what they're working with here. Yeah, you, you've uh, already invested yourself in the process, right? You, so right. you've already, and once you've already, well, look, you already got these things. You already, it works. You know, you made this happen. You know, don't you want to see these things through? And now that you're part of this, you know, you've you've basically already uh, conceded the legitimacy of the process. And now you're just dickering over the details. Right. And there's no room um, for them to start saying, well, uh, you know, if we need these Bill of Rights, why wasn't it just in the first document or anything else? Because all their demands are nominally being met, um, at least as they were interpreted by the nationalistic faction. So. Uh, it's a very, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion combined with the uh, Bill of Rights that were quickly added on, uh, it really just kind of shows how, one, how expert this, uh, this constitutional adoption was. Um, there have been many governments in the Americas that tried to do something similar and dissolved almost immediately or descended into some sort of chaos. Uh, this was a very expertly done uh, centralization of power. Um, but to comment on the moral efficacy of it after you just fought a, uh, a war of independence against the centralization of power without having some sort of representation, and uh, you had just uh, the country had just been taken over by nationalists or uh, federalists uh, who were trying to centralize power and take as much uh, representation away from these interests uh, that were opposed to them, uh, obviously is not, I don't think it would take a... Uh, a strong Christian to say that this is, this is immoral. Um, they had basically lied their way through a revolution in order to advance their interests, and now they had taken over the country, and uh, they started to erode away the, uh, the unique peculiarities of these state governments, uh, which is something that you'll see throughout American history. The earlier back, you, or the farther back you go, um, the more distinct each state looks. North Carolina and South Carolina are different from each other quite extremely and very much different from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Um, but after you get to like the 1890s or so, they've conglomerated into this sort of power block because they have to under the new centralized government. It really destroys these uh, local identities, um, which might also be another moral mark against them, but that's uh, something for another time, just to sort of add on to what we were discussing here. Oh, Tenth Amendment, you are always a lie. Uh, but yeah, so... Uh, now I want to get to the question of the stream. You know, was the Constitution America's first coup? Now, you already kind of said if we saw this in any other uh, nation, we would say yes. So I guess the question I want to go beyond that, though, and I think this is where it gets interesting with kind of the political theory and power analysis. Was this inevitable? Was this centralization of power inevitable? Because it's really easy for us now looking at what has become a global empire um, and say, you know, uh, yeah, we should have just stuck with the Articles of Confederation because uh, then, you know, each state could have done its own thing and there never would have been this centralization and there never would have been this, like, you know, drive for conquest. And, you know, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't currently be ruled by, you know, uh, the Pride Mafia, you know, DOD, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, thing that's going on now. But, um, you know, if they hadn't done this, then it would have been 13 weak uh, countries that would have been constantly interacting with larger European empires uh, who were very prevalent uh, in the area at the time. 
And would would there eventually have been a situation where America basically as smaller states would have just fallen under the influence of other powers, not been able to defend itself, not be able to kind of assert its own dominance uh, or, or, you know, kind of kind of what do you think the fallout would be had this not happened? Right. So uh, before we get into the the what if. There's yeah. a great historical irony here, because as you mentioned, if we had kept the uh, Articles of Confederation, it's not very likely that we would have expanded as much as we did. Right. Um, because you uh, you had the uh, Northwestern treaties and whatever else that had uh, uh, pre-existed the Constitution, so we had already expanded quite a lot. But there's not really much of a mechanism or a way to go past that if this is your goal, um, which was definitely the goal of the more anti-nationalistic, uh, anti-federalists, as they, they uh, because of their interests, their ideals, and their political philosophy were always looking for some form of expansion. Um, you could see this live on into the uh, what would eventually become the Democratic Party into the 1850s, um, which would explain your Mexican-American War, why it was started by, or regardless of who started, why it was prosecuted by uh, a Democratic president under the guise of Manifest Destinies, because this is what that political philosophy leads to, Ironically, they were supporting a mechanism early on in their uh, their progenitors, uh, the anti-federalists, that would not really have allowed that. Right. And same thing on the opposite end, the federalist nationalistic faction uh, would collapse after the War of 1812, basically, um, and re-coalesce eventually in the Whig government, which quite famously was very isolationist, uh, very sort of developmental, very non-manifest destiny uh, in their uh, political philosophies. Uh, so these people that wanted a stronger state government, which would allow for this expansion by the more uh, by the more anti-nationalistic, anti-federalist elements, uh, they they both were kind of supporting the opposite mechanism to achieve what they wanted, just purely from a power analysis. Now, um, if you were to have kept the Articles of Confederation, um, we have seen weaker confederacies survive in da- more dangerous geopolitical positions. Um, the Swiss Confederation is quite honestly a miracle in the same way that the formation of uh, Germany as a unified entity is a miracle on the historical scale. Um, and it's uh, mostly due to the fact that these private mercenary armies that, as we just discussed, even some of the state governments would use to put down their dissenters, uh, tended to be much more professional, much more uh, well-equipped, uh, much better uh, than any sort of centralized army was at the time. And this could only really be argued to be reversed by the Napoleonic Wars, which was still just a European uh, phenomenon for the vast majority of it. Um, I, I would say, therefore, that the Articles of Confederation would have survived. It would just probably be a much smaller country with much less influence, uh, definitely with a, a much less geopolitical influence. Um, I would also say um, that on the local scale, you would probably be dealing with a much more divided uh, country, given that it stays together, it could always just split apart after a while. That was one of the concerns. One of the concerns by the nationalistic faction was that it would, uh, the uh, union would just split apart. Um, provided it doesn't, um, it is very possible that you could see a much more tyrannical local level uh, uh, government from most of these state governments than we see today. So instead of having one um, very rainbow-colored uh, State Department or whatever else, uh, trying very weakly to exert itself over all 50 states uh, very poorly uh, while meeting local resistance in the, uh, in the limited ways that we still allow that. 
Um, it's very possible that you could see one extremely rainbow-colored, like, northeastern block of the country, and one very non-rainbow-colored southern block of the country, or whatever else. Um, some people may desire that. Um, it's, uh, it, it does leave up to question, what about the people in the northeast who would have opposed that? Most of these people in western Massachusetts are probably not the, uh, uh, the uh, heritage stock and the uh, philosophers that would lead to that rainbow revolution that we see in our country today. Uh, they would probably find more co commonality with the, uh, uh, with the red staters that we would have today. Um, if, you could, if you could imagine it that way, of uh, these people leading down the line to these ideas and different governments that we see right now, um, most of these people in western Massachusetts, the Whiskey Rebellion types, uh, despite the fact that they were under uh, more nationalistic regimes that would have, given enough time, solidified their control almost absolutely, if they wanted to, um, they probably would not have desired this. So they would either be stamped out, brushed out, or they would have to go along with it. It's a very, uh, uh, it's a, it's a bleak outlook for anyone that's stuck under these, uh, localized tyrannies. Uh, so it's really a question today, uh, which is more desirable, a, uh, country where half of it is potentially more free, but the other half is just left rot. Or what we have today, where everyone kind of goes along with this together. Uh, you don't have as much uh, local self-determination, um, but what you do have is a much weaker central authority just due to the scale of the whole thing. It's much easier for us to organize now under this government and oppose a central authority all the way in Washington, D.C., trying to exert its influence over what's effectively a foreign population in the red states uh, than it would be uh, for one small localized resistance in, like, uh, Massachusetts trying to oppose a much more well-armed and organized state government uh, with little to no help from the outside. So those are your two, uh, uh, the two things you can pick from there. I don't honestly know which one I'd, uh, I'd accept. I kind of, uh, I feel like the way, the uh, present situation in which we find ourselves today um, is more favorable to a cause that is supportive of liberty and tradition uh, just from the simple fact that uh, your centralizers of the, of the state, the centralized federal state, um, are incompetent, and they have really extended their reach probably farther than what they can effectively administer. Yeah, it's always difficult kind of speculating on those uh, counterfactuals, you know, those, those hypotheticals, but I, do, I think those are all excellent points. And I really do think that it's important for people to realize that either way, we would have uh, faced kind of the issue of centralization and globalization. Um, those forces would not have simply not existed if it was not for the kind of unification of the United States as, or more centralization of power under the Constitution. Uh, so is the Constitution a coup? Yeah, kind of. Um, yeah, pretty much. But, uh, you know, did it didn't necessarily make uh, the country for the worse? Uh, as, as Ryan pointed out, there are many ways it could have gone. Uh, of course, all of that is speculation at this point. Uh, but it is a fun thing to, to kind of think about and to keep in mind as uh, we kind of look at the situation that we have here. All right, guys. Well, I think we got to everything I wanted to hit uh, before we start to head out here. Uh, Ryan, is there anywhere you want people to look, any work that you have coming up, anything you want uh, people to look at, YouTube, you know, Twitter, any of that? Um, so I do have a Twitter account. There's quite a few uh, other developments that have been happening there in other spheres of life than U.S. history. Uh, at Turnip Merchants. Uh, and it's also the uh, screen name that pops up is Ryan Turnipseed, which is uh, the name that you should see here. Uh, find me there. 
I have a pinned thread if you want to catch up on some of that, uh, some of those other developments um, th uh, that have been happening in the more religious sphere of life. Um, and then I have a YouTube channel also under Ryan Turnipseed. Uh, we, or I used to have a weekly Saturday morning stream uh, that had uh, that I've since discontinued. It'll probably be restarting very soon uh, once I get back from some of the summer travel that I have to do. Uh, it focuses on religion, uh, social policy, politics, and whatever else uh, that catches my interest and the interest of my guests. Uh, so you can go find that. There's a pretty good back catalog if you enjoyed kind of what Aron and I were discussing today, um, very much along those lines. Um, and then another few, uh, another couple of things is that I have a, a couple of articles out on Mises.org and LRC, uh, which you can find, uh, which if you are interested in American history, my most recent article for Mises.org uh, is on the myth of an isolationist foreign policy in the United States, uh, detailing some of the forgotten interventions that we had before World War I and in the interwar period. So if you like uh, looking at historical myths, uh, trying to get American history straight from what actually happened. Uh, I have a couple of articles over there now, uh, which you can, by all means, go and read. And I believe that's all that I have at this point in time. Well, Ryan's also a member of the old Gory Club. Right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I have so many things to chill now. The, uh, the old Gory <laughs> Club um, is a great collection of friends. Uh, if you have been paying attention to Aron for any point in time, you will see some familiar faces over at the old Gory Club. It is a group of, uh, of heritage Americans uh, fighting for uh, their interests, at least in the intellectual sphere at this point in time, uh, with more plans going forward. Uh, there is a great catalog at oldgloryclub.substack.com, uh, um, and you can find everything there from the uh, chronicling uh, forgotten history of the United States, just for the sake of chronicling it, uh, to examining some of the great social issues that are uh, present in our time, like the trans movement, uh, like the uh, some of the issues facing veterans. Uh, you can find uh, comments on the religion of anti-fascism that we have all had to face, uh, from me, Charlemagne, if I remember correctly, also has an article on that over there. Um, it's really just a great uh, confederation of our uh, good content producers over there. <laughs> Thank you for remembering that. It would have completely slipped my mind. Would you say it's a confederation of articles? <laughs> yes, yes, a confederation of articles. Uh, perfect way to describe it. I, I just couldn't <laughs> let that go. Sorry, I know it's terrible, but uh, you, can, you can't set a pun up like that. Uh, it's, there's just no other option once you lay it out there. All right, guys. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Of course, make sure you're checking out all of Ryan's work. And if this is your first time here, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, of course, you can go ahead and go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the Warren McIntyre show. When you do, make sure that you go ahead and click on those you know, ratings, leave a review that really helps with all the algorithm magic. All right, guys, we're going to get going. But thanks, everybody, for coming by. And as always... I'll talk to you next time.